You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Uh, well, if any of you know my wife, Kelly, uh, you know that I married uh, above my pay grade because this woman is amazing. I met her in uh, Texas A&M. We got any Aggies? There we are. It's, it's Texas. All right. Uh, I met her at Texas A&M. We, uh, we started dating my senior year, her junior year, and uh, it, it moved pretty quick. We did the quick dating game because ain't nobody got time for a long dating game, you know? So we did the, like the five-month track, and then I proposed to her right after that. So it was a pretty quick thing. And uh, when proposal time came, I'm just kind of of the ilk of you go big or you go home. You got to do it right. And now I'm 19-ish at the time, and uh, I have no money, so I can't do like the, you know, jets in the sky writing the name, you know, thing. Uh, but I did within my parameters what I could do. And uh, what I did was this. Uh, so it was the day I was proposing to her, uh, reservations at the nicest restaurant in town, show up there at six, baby, I'll meet you there, that whole thing. She shows up, I'm not there, I stood her up, because that's the best way to start a proposal, I think. She shows up, I'm not there. She's a little frustrated, uh, but she'll get over it in time. And uh, who is there is the host of the restaurant. And she walks up to my wife and hands her a white rose and a white envelope with her name on it. And Kelly's a little weirded out. And she opens it, and that uh, envelope contains a photocopy of my very first journal entry that I ever made uh, about her. So before we were dating, before we were even really friends, it was the, hey, God, there's this girl sort of, you know, journal entry, and me just kind of freaking out at how amazing this woman was. And, uh, and on the back of that photocopy, I'd written some instructions, and the instructions uh, sent her on a scavenger hunt, uh, which is super romantic. And uh, she leaves the restaurant, uh, having not eaten, and goes to the next place. And the next place is a big old field. And she gets out of her car and she just kind of stands there. And all of a sudden in the distance, she sees this Acura racing toward her, stops right just short of her. And my roommate gets out, runs over to her, hands her some rain boots and a flashlight and points to a tree in the forest and says, go there. Just go with me. Uh, she does because she has faith in, I don't know, my roommate and, and heads that way where she finds another rose, another note, another photocopy of a journal entry and on the back some more instructions to head to another place. She gets in the car and goes there and it's on campus. It's one of the first places uh, we went on a date. So she's standing there and these instructions this time say this, put your hands behind your back, close your eyes and wait which is a kind of creepy thing to ask for a 19-year-old girl on a campus of 45,000 students, but she did it. She stood there like this and waited. And two men ran up to her, took her by the arm, blindfolded her, and threw her in the back of a car. So this is going really well. Just hang with me, okay? You can only go up from here. See, that's the thing. See, there's wisdom. So she's in the car. She, they didn't speak to her. This is terrible. In hindsight, I probably should have reevaluated some of this. She's heading to uh, the final place. It's now, you know, a five-minute drive. They get her out of the car. They stand her up. They unblindfold her. And there, under a Christmas tree-light-covered awning, the very first uh, place where I asked her to start dating me, standing in all of his glory is me. And I have my guitar. And I wrote her a song, and I sang this song for her, the first song I ever wrote for her. 
And then I took the knee and I popped the rock and the rest is history. Thank you. Thank you. I felt that right there. Now, I, I labored with this thing, guys. I labored to pull off this intricate, complex, lots of moving parts thing because I loved this woman and I wanted to make her mine. And so I would do what it took to do that. And here we are in Luke 2, and we're seeing a similar passion happen. We're seeing the great lover of mankind come and coordinate his mission to make the people he loves into his bride. And in this text, we're going to watch our God literally move heaven and earth to come for his beloved. That's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to see that unfold. So let's go to the text right now. And let's just observe some of the details of Jesus' arrival. So look with me at Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor in Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So there's our story. There, there you have it. Uh, it's it's kind of, it's petite, right? It's not a, it's not a massive retelling of the birth narrative. You've got a couple moving parts. You've got a decree, you've got a census, we've got some historical figures, a couple towns, and a birth. That's our story. It moves by pretty fast. Seven verses is all that it took to talk about this coming of the Savior of the world. And there is jaw-dropping beauty in this passage to be seen. Like earth-shaking wonder to behold here. And it's hard to see it right away because it's a little bit obscured for us. It's almost like it's on the other side of a fence. You know, a lot of us are pretty familiar with this story that we don't see it like we should. And because it's sort of on the other side of this fence, we're gonna need to do some climbing. And so we're gonna climb on the shoulders of some of the promises that God has made to his people to peer over the fence to see what God is up to in the story. That's, that's how we're gonna get into the wonder of what God's doing here. And the shoulders of the people we're gonna climb on to get over this fence are Isaiah and Micah, because they made some prophecies, some promises to God's people long before this scene that once we see what they were, we're going to be able to see, wow, so this is what's unfolding. So the two moments I'm referring to are Isaiah 7.14 and Micah 5.2. Isaiah 7.14 says this, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We heard this reiterated to Mary uh, last week in Luke 1. And then uh, the second promise was made in Micah 5.2. And it says this, But you, O Bethlehem Ephethra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is born to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. 
So there's our Old Testament backdrop, Isaiah 7, 14, Micah 5, 2, and they have just been begging for fulfillment for like 700 years and 500 years, respectfully. These verses have been screaming, it's time to be fulfilled, come on. And here we are, we're at the moment. We're at the moment of fulfillment. And, and I began asking my, myself this question as I was studying the text uh, this week, just what must it have taken God to pull something like this off? I mean, the, I don't know if you've spent much time thinking about like all the moving pieces that are at play here, but the complexity, the more I've sat with it, has just been mind-boggling. What it takes to pull off something like this. It's, it's math. It's like cosmic calculus happening in this passage. And I want us to see this. There's some very specific, unique requirements that are, that are happening here. And, and if you're struggling to see how big a task this is, like how, how overwhelming this task is, I'd invite you to just consider anyone who, who's married, been married, uh, on, on your way to being married, maybe you're engaged. I just want you to reflect on what it took to, say, plan your wedding. And of course, uh, right now, I'm only talking to the women because men are useless in those times. But women, do you remember what it took? Like the event coordination, the securing of uh, the, the planner, the catering, the cake, the DJ, the dress, my goodness, the dress, right? It, it's a lot of work, right? Now, imagine you sent your wedding invitations out 700 years before your wedding with all your details listed as exactly as they should be, right? That's what happened here. No pressure, ladies. This is, this is what God was up to in Isaiah and Micah. He's laying out what's going to happen and fulfilling it 700 years later. This is cosmic calculus, and the sovereign God of the universe is orchestrating each piece into this symphony. And it's staggering to consider. Like, uh, I just want to consider some of the things that it took to pull this off with you. Let's, let's think about the timing of things that God had to pull off in order to get Jesus born where he did, when he did. I, I, on an individual scale, let's consider this. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just muse on four ideas with you right here. Let's Sherlock Holmes this for a bit. Okay, uh, idea number one is this. It was roughly nine months prior to this moment in Luke 2 that scripture says that the Holy Spirit uh, came upon Mary, caused her to conceive. That was Luke chapter one. So Jesus is born in this chapter, Luke two. So we know about nine months prior, that was when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and she conceived, right? Fact number two, they were there to be part of a census. Now, I don't know how long a census takes, but I did some speculating this week. This is not a uh, massive city. This isn't the Dallas Metroplex, right? This is Bethlehem. We're talking about hundreds of people and we're talking about a taxation census. We're talking about the Roman government trying to get a sense of who they should get their money from, right? So, so that moment's taking place and I'm speculating I don't know. Let's be liberal with our guests and say it took seven days. It took a week for Joseph to fill out the necessary stuff, to show up at the necessary place and, and say, I'm here, tax me, right? Maybe it was seven days, long lines, Black Friday style. I don't know. But I'm assuming it probably didn't take more than that. So that's my assumption. Census, maybe seven days. Number three, they wound up in a stable behind an inn for the birth, which means Joseph likely owned no property there, right, in this town. 
and he likely had no family or friends there. Because if he did, it stands to reason that he would have just stayed with them, right? But he didn't. He was looking for a hotel, uh, which he didn't even get access to that. So, so probably no family, no friends, and he doesn't own property there. And the last point is just that Joseph and Mary were poor. And we know this because a little bit later in this passage, uh, we find out that they did a particular sacrifice that was meant for the poorer folks who couldn't afford the more expensive sacrifice, right? So all four of those details come together and they make me think this. If the census pro- process only took a week and uh, Joseph doesn't have any relatives there, and he doesn't have a lot of money, so he can't necessarily post up in any place for too long. Likely what's happening is Joseph and Mary are going to roll into town. They're going to try to complete this census process and bounce back to Nazareth. That's what I'm assuming is happening based on the facts of this text. Now, if that's true, that means that there's only at max a seven-day window for the mother of the Son of God to roll into town, start having contractions, and have a baby, therefore fulfilling Micah 5.2. You have a seven-day window for that to happen, and wouldn't you know that's exactly what happened? Seven days. Do you see what that means? That means that from the moment in Luke 1, when Gabriel announced to Mary that she was going to conceive and bear a son, from that moment, God was already coordinating down to the exact minute when Jesus would be born. Now that We should marvel at that, and that should produce some awe in us. But God's not done, because there's more moving pieces than that. And what I mean is this. That's just the individual level, right? But we've got more complexity here, because Joseph and Mary live in Nazareth, which is 85 miles from Bethlehem. And how do you get two random, obscure people from this little town to this other little town that's like 90 miles away to that other little town? How do you pull that off? What, what motive do you give them to go? Well, if you're God, you cause the most important superpower in the world to decide he wants to take a census in around 4 B.C., that, that takes my breath away. That God is coordinating now on international nation state levels. Do you see that? Look at the passage, verses uh, one through three. In those days, a decree went from Caesar Augustus that the, all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. So Caesar Augustus at this time was a guy named Octavian. Octavian was the Roman emperor from about 27 BC to 14 AD when he died. And this guy was arguably the most important person in the known world. I mean, this guy had more authority. He didn't answer to anybody. He was the man. And what he said goes. And what he said one day was, I think I want to take a taxation census. And isn't it interesting that when he woke up that morning and decided he wanted to take a taxation census of the Roman world, that it just so happened to be in the third trimester of a young woman named Mary who needed to get to Bethlehem to give birth to the Son of God, fulfilling a 700-year-old prophecy. Do you see how complex that is? Do you see how amazing that is? This is cosmic calculus. It reminds me of uh, Proverbs 21.1. You remember this verse? The king's heart is like streams of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. I think there's something here for us, and it's this. 
Christian, you need to allow this truth to comfort you. The world will never be so nuts and out of order that it is overriding the sovereign hand of God. Kim Jong-un's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Donald Trump's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Vladimir Putin's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. Your boss's heart, it's like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He points it whichever way he will. And the hands of the Lord are the hands of our Father, and he works out all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Isn't that beautiful? There is nothing too big or daunting for our God. He is working on international levels to bring about good for his people. Praise God for that. That is beautiful stuff. So he's sovereign over the individual. We've seen that with Mary and Joseph. He's sovereign over national powers, but there's more. There's more because Matthew's account of this Christmas story doesn't just involve superpowers. It involves supernovas. Right? It involves the cosmos, the stars. Right? Do you remember Matthew's account of this? Right? So we're a few months into the birth of Jesus at this point, but you remember the Magi show up from the east and they roll up to Herod and they were asking about the baby king because they saw a particular star resting somewhere over the Jerusalem Bethlehem area. And they're interested about this. Now, I'm fascinated by this star, and there's another guy who's fascinated by it, and his name is Rick Larson. He's a scholar, and he spent a number of years studying the gospel accounts of the star. He took the Bible very seriously, and he said, what does it say about what the star did? And he collected that data. And then what Rick did is he laid that data over what we know of modern cosmology, over things like Kepler's laws of planetary motion. There's even software now, I don't know if you know this, that exists that you can look at the sky from any place on earth from any point in history. Because the stars are so systematic, they're so organized, they're on such a regimented pattern that we can literally roll back the clock to whenever we want and look at the sky, it's an amazing thing. And Rick did this, laying the Bible on top of those, uh, uh, the reality of planetary motion and things like that. And he makes the case, I think quite convincingly, that the most likely explanation for the Bethlehem star was the positioning of a particular planet, the, the planet Jupiter, a.k.a. the king planet, just saying, as it went into retrograde motion over the town of Bethlehem, a very, very, very rare occurrence that would have been the brightest thing in the night sky that, that uh, season. The king planet residing right over Bethlehem. Do you know what that means? For that to have happened, that means that God would have had to set things in motion from the foundation of the world to pull off this birth narrative. That means that before he created anything, he was up to our rescue. That's what that means. God is orchestrating things on cosmic levels for the rescue and the good of his people. Wow, right? Like, who are you, God? This is why, by the way, it's passages like this that, that make us at Stonegate just such big celebrators of the sovereignty of God over all things. It is not an imposition for the Christian for us to embrace God's sovereignty. 
It shouldn't be bothersome for us. Do you see? It's sweet. It's a blessing. It it is a comfort for us. I don't know about you, but I cannot survive in this world if I didn't have a sense that over all things, my God is working it for my good. From the individual to the cosmic, he is laboring to bring about my joy in him. Do you see? That's what God's sovereignty over all things means. We quarrel so much about it, but I just want to say it's a gift, man. And it should be precious to us, especially in this Christmas season. Everything has purpose in God's economy. Chaos is a myth. It's a myth. Rest in that today, Christian. Rest in that. And this is why I want you to see God's sovereignty so badly, because as we move through the rest of this text in Luke, seeing this unlocks all the meaning of the rest of this passage. It's going to unlock everything else that we need to see here. And let me give you uh, just an analogy of what I mean. So um, Jackson Pollock was an abstract impressionist painter in the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, his approach to art was a little wacky. He, he was the guy who was leveraging chaos and chance as a tool for his art. I have a piece right here we'll put on the screen for you. So this is a Jackson Pollock painting. Jackson was known for like, he was the guy who would hang buckets of paint on a string from above his canvases and just let them spill out on the canvases because he didn't want to sort of speak into what was going to happen on that page, right? He's the guy you've maybe seen iconic pictures of just flinging paint around on massive canvases. That's Jackson Pollock. Now you might look at that and you might say, that looks really cool because it does. It's kind of a ketchup and mustardy kind of thing happening right there. Oh, you might think that's cool. You might even look at that and you might even conclude, well, that's beautiful. But I'll tell you what you're not going to do. You're not going to look at that and ask, what does it mean? Right? You're not. If you do, we're going to pray for you afterwards because that's weird. Even Jackson didn't know what it meant. He said, he was quoted talking to a reporter, say, when I'm in my painting, I'm not aware of what I'm doing. Even the painter didn't know what that is. You're not going to ask near the questions of meaning with a Pollock as you would a Rembrandt. For Rembrandt, every stroke counted. Every line mattered because Rembrandt was telling a story. In fact, we have a Rembrandt here. This is one of my favorite uh, paintings of his. This is called The Raising of the Cross. I'll tell you why I love it. Because this is actually Rembrandt's self-portrait. That's him at the foot of the cross with the blue hat. Because Rembrandt wanted to make a statement. He wanted to say to his audience, I'm responsible for this. It was my sins that kept my Savior on the tree. Do you see how powerful that image is? You see how it comes alive? It is packed with meaning. Our God is not Apollo. He's a Rembrandt. He's a Rembrandt. And he is telling us something in this story that is beautiful. And I want you guys to see it this morning. We're going to ask the question, what do these seven verses mean? And it means a lot of things, but I think two of the big things it means are this. One is this. It means something about the glory of his coming. And the second thing is it means something about the, the goal of his coming. So it says something about the glory of his coming and something about the goal of his coming. Let's look at the glory of his coming. So he painted this picture for us in Luke 1 through 7. We, we 
we've read it a number of times this morning already, right? And what was the picture he painted? What does the seven verses paint for us? Well, it paints a picture of a poor, unwed teenage mom giving birth to a baby in a barn behind a motel in the middle of nowhere. That's, that's the scene. That's what God decided to paint for us. And if that doesn't sound a little crazy to you, you're crazy. Because that's crazy, right? And to the unsaved eye, that just looks like a Pollock painting, doesn't it? It's like, well, what a mess that is. But it is not. It is a Rembrandt for us, for the saint it is. What does it mean? I think it means this, that God glorifies himself not through pomp and grandeur, but through humility. Or let me say it another way. Jesus' glory is a humble glory. That's one of the things that this passage means for us. Jesus' glory is a humble glory. Now the natural mind doesn't think like this. If you have the chance to write the story about the arrival of the God of the universe into space and time and earth, you'd probably want to sprinkle a little more glitter on the page. You need a little more razzle, a little more dazzle. Like this is not the story that the natural person tells because we are naturally averse to obscurity. We don't like it. And the reason I know we don't like it is because Instagram exists. And if Instagram didn't exist, maybe I wouldn't feel that way, but it does, and so we don't like obscurity. We love to put forward all of our glory for people, right? But God, he loves obscurity and humility and humble posturing because it's saying something about his glory. He loves it. In God's economy, it is humility not pride that is exalted. See that? It's just, Paul's just echoing those words in Philippians 2, isn't he? To Philippians 2, 5 through 9. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why was Jesus exalted to the highest place by the Father? Why did the text say? Because he freely chose to take the lowest place. In God's economy, it is humility and not pride that is exalted. And so here's our first application for this. In light of our Savior's tactics, Christian, stop living to make a name for yourself. We have to stop this because it's not about our glory. You cannot read Luke 2, 1 through 7 
and still conclude at the end of that that the way up is up. The way up is not up for us. The way up is down every time. The way to be first in God's economy is to move to the back of the line volitionally for the sake of the good of others. The way to be exalted is to humble yourself and get as low as you can to lay down your life for the sake of the gospel. The way up is not up. It is down. I I don't know if you guys have heard of this uh, person. His name is Count Zinzendorf, which is maybe the greatest name on earth. And he was a bishop of the Moravian church in the 1700s. Uh, The Moravians were known, maybe you've heard of them, they were known for their missionary zeal. These people were on fire for Jesus and they would go into some of the darkest, hardest to reach places in the world with the gospel. And the count was their bishop. And he had a saying that he would say to his missionaries as they were sent out trying to encourage them to focus on their mission and bringing glory to God and not to themselves, to be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of others. And this is what he would say to them. And it's, it's a little cumbersome, but, but this is what he would look at them and say, your job is to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now that's not exactly charming, but I have found over the past couple months as, as that phrase has been bouncing around in my head that I've been rescued from so much self-inflated glory seeking. When, when I'm in a moment where I wanna promote myself to people or embellish that story so I get a better response or do this or that or watch my, my Facebook feed or Instagram feed or whatever it might be, I remind myself of this. My job is to preach the gospel die and be forgotten and know that in God's economy I am never forgotten because I'm remembered by him the one who has me and has proclaimed the verdict over me he has given me my worth so I don't have to chase it from anybody else that's the that is the mantra of the Christian because we know that though we might be forgotten here we are remembered by our God that's application one here's the second one be a barn not a four seasons. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus humbling himself and being born in a stable behind a motel is shocking to our disposition as people. But in some ways, it shouldn't be shocking, right? If you're a student of your Bible, you would see that really this has been God's pattern throughout human history. Listen to how Isaiah describes God in Isaiah 57, 15. This is what God says about himself. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Listen, quote, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God has two zip codes, right? He dwells in a high and holy place where he is exalted among the cherubim and the seraphim and he dwells with the brokenhearted and the humble and the contrite and the shattered spirit. That's where he loves to live. Or to say it another way, Jesus actually prefers the barn. 
He prefers it. This was God's plan to have Jesus born in a stable behind the inn and not the inn itself. This was the agenda because Jesus loves the barn. It's how he chooses to express his kingliness by mingling with the rabbles and the dregs like us. In fact, and please listen to this, you cannot come to Jesus unless you admit that you are a barn. You can't come. If you think of yourself as respectable, as more put together than the next guy next to you or your husband or your wife, if you think of yourself as moral and upstanding and maybe even worthy of Christ, listen to me, beloved, you will never get Christ. You'll never have him. You'll have all sorts of people staying in your hotel and you'll have a fine time and your hotel will be stacked to the top of the ceiling with your righteousness, but Jesus will not be a tenant. He will not come because he loves the barn. And we gotta stop fighting to become the Ritz-Carlton or the Four Seasons. We gotta stop positioning ourselves in a way that says, God, look how worthy I am of you. He comes to the folks who can finally admit we're not worthy. That's where he shows up. Jesus loves barns. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The glory of his coming was that it was a humble glory. But there was a goal in his coming too. That's the glory of his coming. But, but now we're talking about the goal of his coming. And I just want you to consider something with me for a moment. As we're thinking about the goal of his coming, go, go back in your mind to the scene. Right? Luke 1 through 7, what's happening there? They roll into town in Bethlehem. There's no space for them at the end. They wind up in the stable in the back. What was the name of the city that God had his son born into again? It was Bethlehem, right? And now I'm curious, do you know what the word Bethlehem means in Hebrew? I'm sure some of you do. It means house of bread. And what was he born into? Right, he was born in, in the stable. And what was it he born into? It says it three times in the later part of the text. It says he was born into a manger. Now, what is a manger? Well, a manger was a feeding trough for animals. So remember that the sovereign God of the universe, the, the Rembrandt of the cosmos, has decided to tell the story this way and not another way. And the way he told it was this. The God of the universe will be born in the house of bread, born into a feeding trough. You think he might be trying to tell us something about himself? And then for the whole rest of his ministry, Jesus starts saying the wackiest things about himself. He starts calling himself things like living water 
and new wine. And my personal favorite, John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. I think many of us think that this Christianity thing is mostly about us being saved from a really bad future into a really good future. And that is true. He is doing that. But the question behind that question is, what is he saving us for? And this text is telling us what he's saving us for. Jesus has saved us to satisfy us. Do you see that? He has saved us so that after rescuing us from ourselves and our misguided appetites, he could finally give us true bread. And that bread is him. If you've been confused about what it means to walk with God and know who Christ is, it's so much more than looking to Jesus like a meal ticket. It's looking to Jesus like the meal. He is food for us, for our souls. Not in some like ethereal, weird, I don't know what that means way, but like in a a real practical way, like I've been chasing all these other things. I've been chasing success, or I've been chasing sex, or I've been chasing having the perfect family, or I've been chasing my physical appetite, or I've been chasing a certain status among my peers, or I've been chasing that next job, or I don't know what I've been chasing, but Jesus says, I can satisfy in a way that getting any of those things will not do. He's bread for you this morning. I want you to feast. I want us to feast on him. That's why we sing. It's it's mostly for us so that we can be ministered to by the God of the universe for him to show himself grand in our hearts and we can delight in him. We need to feast. Are you feasting on him? That's what we're asking you to do this morning. And maybe for you, you're hearing this like, I've, I've never thought about Jesus in those terms. Brother, sister, I'm, I'm here to push you into a knowing of God that goes beyond just getting out of hell. He wants to satisfy you. Run to him this morning. Ask him to do that. Even as we sing these next songs, ask him for that. If you've been running to all those broken wells and drinking from them and finding it just as mud, ask him to change your heart and give you a new appetite. We have people at the prayer table in the back that would be so eager to pray with you for that. I wonder who who of us would have the humility to posture ourselves with somebody else in here and just say, I need this. I don't feel that way about my Savior. Would you pray for me? We want to give you an opportunity to do that during worship. Jesus' bread. He showed us this right here, the moment he came, and he is showing us this every day since he satisfies. Will you come to him today? Let's pray. Take a minute. Ask God 
to help you believe that. Ask God to give you eyes to see Jesus as more than just a meal ticket this morning. Maybe for you it was the issue of his humility. Ask him for more humility. Ask him to to help you see how the way up is down. We just need grace. We need him. Ask him. Lord, would you please satisfy us with your presence? You really are the bread of life and we are believing in faith this morning that he who comes to you will never hunger. He who believes in you will never thirst. God, fill us up with joy in your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.